All right. So I'm going to be sharing with you another parable. Uh, actually, two parables that are packaged together. And in this parable, I, what I'm going to do a little bit differently than what we've done so far is I, I want to kind of dispel some false understandings of this parable. And I want to do this because uh, we often take this on, and the gospel is such a beautiful, beautiful thing that we must know what it means for us to fully accept and embrace it. And you and I, we live in a culture where so much is on our shoulders, right? It's the way that whatever we're going to get out of life, we're going to get based on what we ourselves put into it, what we do. You grow up in school, you grow up in careers, um, understanding that life is what you make it. And so many times we are tempted to take that idea of living life and apply it to the gospel, which is completely misunderstanding what the gospel is trying to say. Time and time again, what we try to do is prove that we are good enough for the gospel or prove that we understand the gospel or try to somehow work it out. Now I'm saved, so now I've got to do A, B, and C, or God's going to be unhappy with me. And a lot of what we see in these two parables tends to fall, it tends to reinforce that. Are you really serious about Jesus? Are you really serious about the gospel? Have you really received Jesus? Have you done the things that you're supposed to do to be a good Christian? And that is a very defeating way to look at growing in your faith. Because I don't know about you, there, I know I'm not doing everything I could be doing. And I regularly, if that's the way I viewed the gospel, would feel like a failure. So as we go through these two parables, we're going to do a little bit of myth dispelling. And in order to do that, we have to have a different understanding of the gospel and what God is trying to say to us. We're going to start with Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 28. This is the parable of the tower and the warring king. This is not one that we often talk about. We, we will pull a couple of verses out of these parables, but we usually don't focus on these parables as a whole. We're going to do that this morning. Verse 28, and by the way, if you want to follow along on version, you can do that, and we hope that you will. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, when we come to verse 33, you, you can easily do a double take and think, wait, what? I, we're talking about a tower. Now we're talking about going to war. And now if we don't give up everything, we can't be his disciple. And Jesus seems to be making this kind of radical leap from thought to thought. And we're not exactly sure what he's saying. But we have to remember, when we go back to the parables, what are the parables always teaching us about? The kingdom of God. It's not just life principles. It's not just how do I live a better life. It's not just how do I be a better Christian. They are life principles that we are supposed to understand in the context of the kingdom. We are living in a kingdom that is outside of this world. 
Now, Jesus is constantly calling us to living in this different kingdom, and yet while we're here in this place, Paul describes the frustration of trying to do that this way. He says, I would literally rather die and go be there full time, but this is where I'm supposed to be right now. And as we follow Jesus, that really is where we will end up believing. I am kind of done with this world, but yet it's not my time to go. And as we look through what Jesus is teaching, I think it's very easy to accept or to take in a false understanding. But let's just look at the basic meaning and then let's, let's, we've got to look at the context. Because the context is what gives these two parables meaning um, and our, gives it a better way for us to understand. So the basic parable is this. And Jesus often when he taught in parables... He would look around at what's going on right there. When he's talking about the sower, he's he's looking around and looking at the fields and where people can sow. And whenever he's talking about the tower, he's probably in an area where somebody's building something. And he's referencing somebody's building something. In this area, this is an area of farmers. They might be building a house. They might be building a tower that's going to hold some of their crops. Uh, We don't really know. But likely, his audience is sitting around looking. And Jesus said... Who would build a tower without counting the cost and that they would start and would not be able to finish? At the same time, this was an area of the world that was constantly at war. The history of the nation of Israel was one of constantly being at war with other people. Their hope for a savior was the hope for a military leader that would come in and deliver them from all of their oppressive enemies. And their current enemy was Rome. They had taken over Jerusalem, they had taken over this area, and they were hoping for a deliverer. That's why so many people, when we look at Jesus' coming as a Savior, why he has to say over and over and over again, no, my kingdom is not of this world, because this is what people wanted. They wanted God's kingdom established in the nation of Israel, in this war, with an incredible wall that no one could come in, and they would just be prosperous and live forever. That's what they hoped for. And so he uses the analogy of these warring people. I mean, who's going to go to war with only 10,000 people if their army that they're going against has 20? And that's why we send somebody out before they know they've got 20,000 and we've got 10. And let's try to figure out how to be at peace and not go to war. Because usually you don't win in those circumstances. So his idea here is certainly that there has to be a counting of the cost. There has to be an understanding of what is the goal, what is it going to take to realize the goal, and do you have what it takes in order to realize the goal? Can you make it happen, or are you going to get started, and then you have to stop? I remember one one time in our, our life, we even have different seasons where we have felt like we were supposed to move, and we were looking at some houses in the area and kind of somewhat in the area where we've ended up in now. And I remember we found this one house and we were just, we were just trying to, we were trying to find the best we could with, with whatever we could afford, which is basically what everybody else does, right? You call the bank and you say, okay, this is how much we make. And they say, okay, well, this is how much I'll loan you, which is, by the way, always more than you can repay. Always more than you can repay. You know, I think you can afford a half million dollar house. Um, really? <laughs> Okay, let's go get it, you know? And quite honestly, a lot of people, they, that's the reason they fall into this trap 
of getting into so much debt to buy their stuff because they really can't afford it. And whenever you're coming up and you're a young adult and you guys, as you guys are about to, to graduate and you're going to go out and you're going to start your lives, it's going to be very easy to just say, you know what I, you know what I've always wanted is a really cool car. I can do that. You know, I don't really have any bills. And then you find out, oh wait, you got to pay for stuff, right? I got to pay for insurance. Oh, and the nicer the car, the more the insurance payment's going to be. All right. Well, now we're going to have to pay for insurance. And then we start talking about gas. Well, but this car is really fast. And so I got to put a lot more gas in it than I used to have to put in my little car that didn't go very fast, but it didn't use a lot of gas. And now I've got to have to pay for utilities in my apartment or in my house. And so now I'm going to have to do all, and all of a sudden, this payment for a car that you think you can afford, you can't anymore. And you're stuck. You can't get rid of it because now you're trying to pay for a car, but it's lost all of its value and you're stuck. So many people fall into this trap. We were driving um, through some of the neighborhoods yesterday after Widow's Harvest and Jonathan, he pointed out, he said, did you see that house? It was like, I mean, it was like you wouldn't put your, your dog in there. The house was about to fall, you know, just fall to pieces, but it had like a new Corvette parked out front. Did you see that Corvette parked outside that house? It's like, man, there's somehow, that's how some people live their lives. They've got to have that nice car, and they don't care where they live. Other people will drive just the, a car that is barely making it down the road. I mean, you can hear them coming from five miles away. It's just chugging and chugging and chugging, you know, like the little engine that could, trying to make it over the next hill. And yet they live in this magnificent palace. How many of us count the cost on the decisions that we make? One of the, the conversations we're having with Jake, and I know some of you are as well, with students that are getting closer to graduation is, as you start to think about a career, I know when I was graduating high school, I had no idea what career I wanted to go into. I just knew I wanted to make money, right? Which, which major do I need, right? I just give me the one that makes me the most money. That's the one I want, okay? Put me there. And the reality is, that we do have to look and count the cost of education. And what kind of career do we want to go into? And what's the payback going to be? And what's our life going to be like if we fully embrace this career and we make whatever that career makes? Is it enough to live on? Because there are some really great careers out there that you can't live on. You can have fun at work, and you better because you're going to be miserable everywhere else, right? <laughs> We gotta count the cost when we start thinking about our careers, when we start thinking about our, the degrees that we're going after. Deidre and I, we constantly talk about, you know, hey, do I wanna go get a PhD? And she's thinking, oh, do I wanna go get some more training? We're like, gosh, we're starting to get older. Do we really wanna go do that now? Is that really what we wanna do? We gotta count that cost. And Jesus is certainly saying, count the cost. But then he drops in at the end of these parables this, if you don't give everything up, you can't be my disciple. So Jesus, what he's really talking about is discipleship and following him. It's not always easy to kind of pull all the dots together and understand where he's going with this unless we begin to look at the context of the parable. So let's do this. Let's back up and what is happening immediately before Jesus tells this parable. We back up to verse 25 and it says... Now great crowds accompanied him. Now, we've seen so far, what does Jesus do usually when a great crowd comes by? Does anybody remember? Does he make it easier to understand? See, most of us 
that are in church leadership today, we have been through seminars and classes and we've read books on when you get a large group of people, this is how you capture their attention. This is what you need to say, and this is how you keep the crowd. But Jesus didn't read those books, and he didn't go to those seminars, and he's not been in those classes, clearly. Because every time Jesus has a big crowd, he begins to say things that make people go, I'm not sure about this. <laughs> this is not, I'm not sure I want to be a part of this. Here's a great example. Great crowds accompanied him. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus would have failed every one of those classes. If you have to write up a paper on what do you do when a crowd is out there coming to hear you, Jesus would have gotten an F on his paper, right? This is what Jesus does. And the reason I tell you this is not just to say that Jesus was really not a very good motivator, but was to say that Jesus had a message that may be slightly different than what we thought it was. Because... I grew up, and probably you've grown up, and I've often believed that the gospel was such wonderful good news, we need to make it as easy for people to understand so they can receive it and have it and have joy and love and be excited and be able to be with God in heaven forever. And while all those things may be true to a degree, that is not the way we actually come to a saving relationship with Christ. And time and time again, what Jesus says is this, you need to count the cost For what you're going to do. Are you going to follow me? There's a cost. There's a cost to following me. Now when I was growing up. I didn't get to listen to a lot of the music you all got to listen to. Because my parents looked at all my stuff. They looked at all of my you know cassette tapes that came in. Because that's what I had. We had cassettes. I was not new old people that had 8 tracks. I had cassettes. Which... Those of you who don't know what a cassette is now, you can come talk to me and I will share that with you. They would look and they would look at the rating and if it had a rating, it was a no-go in my house. If it had an explicit rating, it was a no-go, did not get to happen. And then you think, oh, well, that's okay. My parents don't really care what I listen to. I mean, they would literally, whenever you would get a cassette, you could open the cassette and pull out the little dust sleeve, right? And then you could open up and what was inside the dust sleeve? The lyrics. So I remember I bought this. I, it was a, I think it was a Bon Jovi cassette back in, back in the once Celine Dion. She wasn't she wasn't big yet. I think it was Bon Jovi, and so it didn't have the explicit rating. I was smart enough to know not to get the explicit rating. And yet they pull it open and they start asking me about what these lyrics mean. And I, I'm like, I don't know. I don't listen to the lyrics, right? And then they start grilling me over the meaning of these songs. And I'm like, I don't know. Well, Bon Jovi did not get to stay in my house after that. As we look at this, and I don't even know why I brought that up now. I had a reason, I had a reason for bringing that up. I, it has completely left me. But What? Yeah, the message is that's not where I was going with the cassette thing. <laughs> Listen, I'll, it's been one of those weeks. I'll come back to this in just a minute, all right? 
Let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, the cost of discipleship. Verse 25, great crowds accompanied him. And he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then we see the parables and they come into play and they come into being. And then we look immediately after the parables and we pick up. So verse 33, the end of the parables, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 34 says, salt is good. You remember this passage, because we do talk about this one a lot. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, interestingly, I'm not going to read it, but immediately after that passage is another that you're very familiar with, and that is who, having 99 sheep, wouldn't go after the what? One who was lost. That is a package. That is a thought that Jesus is putting out there all tied in with these parables saying, who would build a tower without counting the cost? Or they would go to war without deciding, can I truly win it? Now, what you've probably believed and what you have taken in and what you have understood and 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 what we have taken away from this is that if you're going to really follow jesus don't do it unless you know you're going to be serious about it if you're going to follow jesus don't do it unless you're willing to pay the ultimate price if you're going to follow jesus make sure you are going to count the cost before you choose to follow him. And I think one of the problems, some of the reasons that that's a problem, the reason that I want to kind of debunk that as what Jesus is trying to say here is Jesus is totally doing this in the context of understanding how to reach out to people. How to reach people. I mean, he's talking about the lost sheep. He wants the lost sheep to come. He's got these, this large group of people. They're there. They are interested in what Jesus is saying. We know that Jesus has said, it is my desire that all people would know me and none would perish. That is what Jesus' desire was. It wasn't that I'm going to find you intellectual elites that can figure out what I'm talking about in this maze, this word maze that I'm giving you. Instead, what Jesus is saying is this is important about how we reach out to people. And perhaps counting the cost is not meant in the way that we have understood. Because if you approach Jesus with the mindset or the mentality that I've got to to know what I'm doing and giving in order to get this, How many of us would truly follow Jesus? How many of us would truly count the cost? How many of us even know what the cost is? I remember when I first felt that Jesus was really saying to me, I want you to follow me, not just go to church, because that's different. I mean, I think we talk about that a lot. It's different going to church and following Jesus, isn't it? When I first, I had been going to church my whole life. From the time I was born, I was in church. But there was a very real time that I began to feel Jesus was saying, listen, despite everything else going on, I want you to follow me. That invitation is different than, hey, you want to go to church with me, right? I mean, that's an important question. That's an important invitation. And that's an important part of the process of growing as a disciple. But that's very different than, hey, I want you to follow me. 
And so if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying about counting the cost and in following him, we have to look at this whole as a package and understand that Jesus was always calling people to real discipleship. That was always his call. He was always issuing the invitation, listen, don't just walk around with me. I mean, really, be my disciple. And I always thought I wanted to be cool, and I talked for a while about what kind of tattoo do I want to get, and I had settled on a tattoo I wanted. I don't have any. You're kind of looking, people are wondering now, does he have a tattoo? I don't. Although I do have to say, I do question some of the fashion choices of some of the people in our church. I appreciate Ken taking his flip-flops off. I did not realize when I saw him earlier that his toenails are painted. That is an interesting choice, Ken. That was... The men in our church like to paint their toenails. I don't get it. Josh had his painted some kind of purple sparkly thing a few weeks ago. I don't... Anybody else? Herman does? Oh, man. We need to have a men's meeting after church today, right? Y'all stick around. We need to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Oh man, that was mean. That was terrible. Terrible. That, this toenail polish has nothing to do with real discipleship, by the way. Not for or against, right? You're welcome. You're welcome, brother. Jesus has always been calling people to real discipleship. Now, when we're going to talk about real discipleship, we got to, don't we need to define what discipleship is? And ultimately, if we go back and we look at just the word discipleship, here's, here's the kind of the definition I want you to think through. And this is something I want you to, I really want you to wrestle with. I don't want you to just say, oh, Mark says this is a, the definition of disciples, so this is it. That is, Jesus never said that, by the way. Paul never said that. And John and Peter and Paul and none of the apostles ever said, you know what, I said it, so just take it to the bank. Well, Jesus probably did, but not even that, not overtly, because they understood that you've got to come to the place where you accept something as authoritative so that you will change and live your life by that authority. And so that's why consistently we hear the apostles saying, listen, don't take my word for it, you know, test it out yourselves. But discipleship, and this is what I'd like you to wrestle with, literally is apprenticeship. Now, do we have any, anybody come up through an apprenticeship in here? We've got a couple. What's an apprenticeship? Can you give us like a, a you know, a 15 second or 30 second description of how apprenticeship works? And so you, you learn from somebody who's doing it. And then you repeat what they're doing, right? That's yeah. So a few years ago, we began talking as some leaders in Journey about what does it really look like to have a discipleship program here? And so we went through, we went through tons of scripture together. We read some other authors and other books. And we all, this, this, probably shouldn't be saying this, but we all came to this conclusion. We all came to the conclusion that what discipleship is understood in Scripture best mimics in what we do in everyday life is an apprenticeship. This is why Scripture holds up those with life experience. We'll just help keep it at that, right? Life experience. Their hair's a different color than it was when they were born, right? We hold up as life experience as valuable because they have something to teach those who don't have much life experience yet. And as we look through, the one 
idea, the one example we could follow in what we do in everyday life is that discipleship literally looks like you have a mentor and you have an apprentice. And the apprentice follows the mentor everywhere they go. And in the process of following the mentor, they begin to adopt the characteristics of the mentor until they themselves are also at a place of spiritual and discipleship growth that they're mimicking the one that they're watching. Now, the problem and the reason that we kind of talked about it and we all kind of left a little frustrated because we weren't real sure how to make that happen in the church. This is the way Jesus talks about it. This is the way that they did it in the first century. But in our culture, we've got some real problems with that kind of way of learning and growing as a disciple. Because number one, you've got to follow somebody around, right? And we're so busy, we don't have time to follow anybody around. The second problem that we have with this is the idea that those with more life experience are someone that we need to learn from because our culture says the older you get, the less relevant you become. Jesus says, listen, the older you get, the more relevant you become. And yet in our culture, they say the exact opposite. But discipleship at its core, at its base of what it looks like, really is apprenticeship. Now, if you've never looked into what an apprenticeship is, it's a beautiful picture of you're coming out and you don't know how to do a trade. And so you look at somebody who is now a professional at this trade and you just go and do what they do. The apprentice never says to the mentor, they never say, you know, have you ever thought about doing it differently? They don't do that. You're not an apprentice anymore and you start doing that. When you ask the master, you tell the master, you know, you could be doing that better. You're doing that wrong. That's not the way it works. Discipleship is apprenticeship. This is what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to real apprenticeship. So what is that? Discipleship is literally following Jesus. Now don't disconnect from me because you've heard that so many times in your life. That has no meaning for you anymore. You don't really think about what does it really mean to follow Jesus anymore. But what does it really look like if you are his apprentice following him around, mimicking what he's doing, doing what he's doing, then who are you going to begin to look like? You're going to begin to look like Jesus. This is what he's constantly calling people to. And whenever we see these inflammatory statements, listen, if you don't hate your father, you don't hate your mother, you don't hate your brother, and you don't hate your sister, you can't be my disciple. Tell me a single person out there who doesn't have love in their heart for their family that listens to that and says, oh, sign me up. <laughs> Instead, there's something guttural within us that says, how dare you tell me to hate my mother and father? I mean, the Ten Commandments say I'm supposed to obey them, right? Or the the law says I'm supposed to obey my mother and father. Now you tell me I've got to hate them? See, this is where when you begin to dig into Scripture for more than just the face value nuggets, but you begin to dig in to find out what is this life really that Jesus is calling me to, you've got to wrestle with this stuff. And this is exactly why when a crowd comes around him, Jesus throws out something that they've got to wrestle with because he wants to know, are you really engaged in what I'm talking about or not? So discipleship is apprenticeship. Discipleship is following Jesus. Discipleship is valuing what Jesus valued. It means doing what Jesus did. It means going where Jesus went. 
See, the apprentice doesn't stay at home and follow along by text what the master's doing, right? He's walking right along with them, doing the work, first watching, then practicing, then getting better. And the beautiful thing about an apprenticeship way of doing discipleship is that the apprentice eventually becomes the mentor to another apprentice, which is the way that we propagate the gospel in others, which is one of the reasons that we had a time in our nation where we could just cast a wide net and tell a lot of people the gospel and people would grab onto it. But that is not the world we live in now. I'm not saying it never works, but the world has changed dramatically. And that way of sharing the gospel doesn't work anymore because for one, we as Christians can't even agree on what it looks like to follow Jesus. Every denomination has its own bend. Every network has its own bend. Even churches within those have their own way of understanding and interpreting and the things that they value and that we cannot even agree. We can't agree about what kind of songs we should sing. We can't agree about what kind of building we should meet in. We can't agree about, you know, should men and women serve in leadership. We can't agree about all kinds of things. We can't agree about how we do missions. We can't agree about what the gospel looks like. Some will say that the gospel looks about feeling a lot of the Holy Spirit within you. While someone else will say, you know what? Feeling doesn't matter at all. What really matters is what you're thinking. So we can't even agree. And so when we back up and we say, well, then what is discipleship? Well, then it's just, it's just up to every individual to define what that is. Jesus would never have said that. But that's where we end up. But instead, discipleship really looks like we value the things that Jesus valued. How do you know what he valued? It means we do what Jesus did. Well, how do we know what he did? We go where he went. Well, how do we know where he went? Why did he choose where he went? I really don't think following Jesus is supposed to be as tricky or as hard or that it even needs a textbook. Following Jesus is simply, I've got to find out what Jesus said, what Jesus did, what was important to him, and that needs to be what I say and what I do and what is important to me. That is what discipleship is. And Jesus could see, and it had happened, and this was the path of the Jewish nation. They believed, but they didn't believe. They knew all the things they were supposed to do, but they didn't have a heart that was held towards God. So the very problems that they had that Jesus saw and was calling them out, that he was saying, you've got to be able to count the cost if you're going to be my disciple. Oh, I remember where I was going, by the way, the cassette tape. I remember now. See, it comes full circle. This is what happens. See, you get, you get this gray hair and you forget, but it comes back in the most inopportune moments. I, I, so, you know, the music I could have was David Meese. Did anybody else listen to David Meese when you were growing up? Yes. Do you know what I'm thinking of? Yeah, okay, all right. He had a song called, You Gotta Count the Cost. I could sing it right now. You gotta count the cost. If you're gonna be a believer, you gotta know what is right. If you're gonna really serve the Lord, that's why I'm not a singer. That's why I'm not on tour singing, you know? But I remember that song. I mean, it was embedded in me. I listened to it all the time. If you wanna, you wanna do that again, I'll do it after the service. We'll get the band up here. We'll really give it a good go. No, not really. But, um, anyways, that's where I was headed with the whole Bon Jovi thing was David Mises count the cost. But that's one of the problems when we count the cost because see, whenever we understand what Jesus is saying in the sense of I have something I have to pay, then all of a sudden we take responsibility for salvation and which we have none. 
How many times have we inflicted upon people a, a religious scenario in which we have de- told them, this is what you have to do to be a good Christian, and they walk away because they're not sure they can? But what if they could? Then who's responsible for that? Are they? Look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished. Look at how I love Jesus better than you. Yet the gospel says there was nothing in us that was redeemable save the love of Christ that he would die on the cross for us. None of us are good. The way to to Christ is impossible for anyone, even now without the Holy Spirit. So when we understand count the cost, the reason that we have to change the way we understand it is the gospel does not say, if you are willing to try hard enough, you can know Jesus. Because that changes what Jesus said. It's by faith, it's not by works, so that no one can boast. It is a gift of God. But he is still saying you got to count the costs, right? So what does that mean? What does that look like? Jesus described following himself in the ways of leaving your father and mother, even hating your father and mother, picking up your cross to follow him. But he also described it in the sense of loving others, especially those others that wouldn't love you back. Loving God being the most supreme goal of our life above anything else, that if we're going to get one thing right, let us love God well and everything else will fall into place. But he also said, if you love me, you will follow my teachings. Whenever we look at valuing all these things that Jesus valued, doing what Jesus did, going where Jesus went, that means that we are doing the things Jesus did. We are spending time learning, but we are spending time teaching. Are there, is there anybody in your life that you are intentionally pouring yourself into in, in a faith way. I don't just mean at work. I don't just mean you're trying to get your kids to not run out into traffic. I mean, you, somebody's faith relationship with Christ, you're investing in somebody else. Is there anybody that's doing that? Is there, is there somebody that you're reaching out to and they, don't, they have no interest in Jesus? They have no interest in the church. But yet you're building intentional relationships with them so that they know they are loved even then. In the hopes that one day they'd be able to know Christ. Do you have those relationships within your life? Because Jesus always did. When he was traveling, he was always building these relationships with people. And not everyone he built a relationship with him ever followed him. In fact, what's incredible is some of the people that he informed great feats for them. The blind that now they could see. The lame that now they could walk. They took their gift and walked away. They still didn't follow him. Are we mimicking what Jesus is doing? Are we challenging people? Or are we scared to death that somebody's going to get upset with us and so we just hold back? Do we rebuke? Because Jesus rebuked. In fact, he looked over to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. We don't rebuke because we don't judge, right? Are we doing the things Jesus does? Are we going to the lepers and... For some of you, the leper is not a medical condition that someone has. For some of you, it's their social outlook of life. It's the way they view their own gender. 
It's the way they understand sexuality. For you, that may be your leper because you grew up believing, I have nothing to do with that group of people. It could still be someone's skin color. Who are the people that we are like, I see them coming and I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Because there was nobody like that for Jesus. Except those that felt that they were better than everybody else. He pretty much stayed away from them. Had some unkind words to say to those. That's what discipleship is. So what does it mean to count the cost? How we've heard it, don't be a Christian if you aren't willing to go the distance. Well, that's a good way for failure. But I bet every person in this room has wrestled with this definition of counting the cost. I bet every single one of you have. I have. Don't be a Christian if you aren't willing to go the distance. But what if Jesus wasn't just calling us to try harder? But instead, he's just saying, I want you to know what you're getting into. What if counting the cost wasn't make sure that you're committed? Instead, it was know that when you follow me, things are going to go off the rails. Know that what you're getting into means that you don't have to hate your father and mother, but what if they hate you because you follow me? What if your relationships with others are broken because you are radically following me now instead of their idols? And today our idols are any number of things. Our idols can be because uh, we're not willing to go do the things after work that we used to do with them because we won't drink the same things or smoke the same things or you know, maybe we don't use the same language that we used to use anymore. And they say, you know what? You've become a goody-goody. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And you have broken relationships. You should know that up front, shouldn't you? You should know up front that it's possible that somebody's going to come to you and they're going to put a gun to your head and say, you either recant of your faith in Christ or I'm pulling the trigger. You need to know that's possible, right? Now, that's very different than saying, now, you don't, don't be a Christian unless you're willing to die for your faith. That's very different. Because when we say something like that, what we're saying is it's up to you to do it all right. Because if you're not going to do it right, you know, Jesus spits those people out of his mouth. He wants you hot or cold, not lukewarm. But what if that's not what Jesus is saying? Because remember, in the context of the parable, what Jesus is saying is, who with 99 sheep sees one who's lost isn't willing to go after the one who is lost and leave the 99. That changes the context of the parables. So perhaps Jesus is just saying, there's going to be a radical change in your world if you follow me. Radical. And you need to be prepared for that to happen. You don't need to come into it with all of the answers figured out. You just need to know the possibilities of following me, following me means, following me means, now the world is not going to be happy with you. And the world's going to be harder because you're following me. But I don't need you to prove that you're up for it because I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. That's the way that you're up for it. Some of the ways that I, I think about this is a difference. And I've struggled with this throughout my life. As we grow, our understanding grows and we kind of grow deeper knowing what God is trying to say and but there's a difference between obligation and Jesus being our treasure, isn't there? See, there's a difference when he says, you've got to leave your father and mother 
And you read that as in, oh, great, i got to have nothing to do with mom and dad if I'm going to follow Jesus. There's a difference in that and Jesus is the pearl of great price. He's a treasure found in the field that you'd go and sell every single thing you have just to have him. It's, it's the 23rd Psalm when he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but it's okay. I'm fear no evil because Jesus is with me. Even though the entire time I'm saying, Jesus, can we get out of here? And he's saying, no, no. But I'm with you. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you so that you can confidently say, the Lord is my God. I will not be afraid. See, this invitation from Jesus to count the cost isn't the invitation to prove you're man enough or woman enough for the job. It's a sobering reality that Jesus is either the most important thing in my life or he's not. And I need to know which it is for me. Is he my pearl of great price? Is he my treasure buried in the field? Am I literally willing to give up everything for him? Or what are the things I'm not willing to give up? That changes the way we understand. It changes the way we read it. It changes the way we look at it. Obligation versus treasure. And oftentimes, we have all kinds of indicators where you are. How often do you come to church? How much do you tithe? How often are you serving others? Whenever we have a special service day, how many people are showing up for it? I mean, we could come up with all kinds of metrics to measure how good a Christian are you, right? Jesus would never have done that. Jesus would just basically have said, you're in or you're not in. That's really it. You're in or you're not in. All the other stuff doesn't really matter because if you're in, it will change the way you live your life. If you're not in, you will fool yourself and everyone else, but you won't fool me. You're in or you're not in. This is why I think that Scripture tells us that we're supposed to be either warm or hot or cold and not lukewarm. Because at least if we're hot or cold, we know what our motivations are. But if we're lukewarm, we're unsure. We fool ourselves. We're convinced in one way, but we're living in another. And how many people... I, I, to this day, the passage I learned as a child that has shaped my understanding of following Him more than any other is... And we stand before Christ and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. But Jesus, look at all that we did in your name. That to this day scares me to death. Paul, it scared Paul too because that's why Paul said, I'm, I beat the air, I beat my body, I train, I practice, I'm running a race because after preaching this and spending my life focused on this and saying this is the most important thing in life, I do not want to be found disqualified for the prize because I didn't truly get it. So it's not, are you good enough to not get spit out of Jesus' mouth? The question is, is are we honest enough to say Jesus is the most important thing to me or he's not? When we count the cost, are we going to build the tower? Are we going to get to the place where we decide, you know, too much? Just like Jesus saying when the crowd crowds around and he's saying, unless you hate your father and mother and brother and sister, you cannot be my disciple. What he's saying with counting the cost is, don't hang out with me. Until you know exactly what it's going to cost you. And I think that's one of the reasons that the church is in the shape that it's in today. Is because we shared a gospel devoid of this type of teaching. And what we said is if you will follow Jesus, everything will be okay. Except okay is very subjective, isn't it? Okay for one is devastation for another. 
And we said, if you'll just follow Jesus, all your problems will go away. No, they won't. They'll, they'll get worse. <laughs> There'll be more. And you'll feel like you're in the valley of the shadow of death, but you will fear no evil because Jesus is with you. So when we look at real discipleship, it's less about me doing all the right things, and it's more about me being able to know that Jesus is the most important thing for me. Paul understood this, and this is what he said. This is, and then I'm going I'm to close with a few questions, and then we're going to sing one more song. In Philippians 3, 1 through 11, this is what Paul says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. In other words, I've told you this before. You really need to get this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, we couldn't count the cost enough. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, if it's all about your acts of the will, guess what? I'm in good shape, even better shape than you. But even then, it's not about our acts of the will. Verse 5 says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the treasure. That's the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil because you are with me, because I have found that you are my greatest treasury, the greatest gift, the greatest way of living my life is walking with you, being with you. And if they nail me to a cross, I'm okay with that because you're still there with me. And then I, after this world, this pitiful little world that we're a part of, we're going to be in a glorious place in eternity with you in heaven in which Jesus looked over at the thief on the cross who was dying in that moment. And he said, today you will be with me where? In paradise today. It's incredible when we understand what Jesus is saying here. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I don't even care that I lost them in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is if we count the cost, and that's on us, that we've got to do enough, be committed enough, work hard enough to be acceptable to Christ. I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10 says that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So why do I share all this with you? I share this with you because we are in a bit of a crisis in the church in America. Because if we're honest, we put our hope in people. We put our hope in good speakers and good musicians, good programs. 
We're in a crisis because we put our hope and our ability to somehow be good enough people for Jesus. We've put our hope in activities and programs. And what Jesus has always said all along is, I, I am the treasure. And those who follow me, they have me and I'm with them. That means that right now, some of you, maybe many, maybe all, I don't know, are going through some very difficult things. And it may be, you may be going through them personally, privately. No one even knows what you're struggling through. You may be struggling as a family. You may be struggling at work with, as a business. You're all struggling together. And Jesus never said, I'm going to take away your struggle. What he said is, I'm going to be there with you in the midst of the struggle. And no matter what the struggle is, it will never be greater than the joy of me being with you if you just know me and walk with me and follow me. That's why we walk away from Christ so often when we're trying to do it on our own. Here's some questions for you to think about that I asked myself this week. What did you believe you were getting into when you became a disciple? When I first joined the church, I was eight years old. You know what I thought I was getting into? On some Sunday mornings, you get to have juice and crackers in church. But only if you're a Christian. No joke. I was like, mom and dad wouldn't let me take communion because I wasn't a Christian. Eight years old, I joined the church because, listen, I, do you know how many sermons I got to sit through? And as an eight-year-old, we didn't have Kidmo. I mean, we sat and I watched. I, 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 my imagination and creativity grew in church. That's where it happened because as the pastor preached, I daydreamed about a shooting gallery in the choir loft. No joke, because I thought shooting galleries were the greatest thing ever invented when I was a kid. You know, you go to the carnival, you put your quarter in, you, get, you shoot all these things, and you know, water gun shoots back at you. It's great. It's awesome. And I would just imagine these things going behind the pastor because it was so hard. I had no concept of what it meant to follow Jesus in that moment. It was later that I felt Jesus say, I want you just to follow me. I want you to walk with me. And listen, it's going to be glorious no matter what happens. But you do need to know some bad things are going to happen. But when they do, I'm there. And here's the beauty of it. Even when the bad things happen, I'm going to use them for your good because that's what I do for those who I love and love me and are called according to my purpose. I work all things for good, even the bad stuff. As we've talked in weeks past about the call of contentment, that Jesus is literally calling us to a life of contentment, that no matter what we have, see, when Jesus is the most important thing you can have, the rest of this stuff doesn't matter. You may have it, but it doesn't matter. You're content in Him. Jesus is saying, is when I'm with you, when you get that I'm the greatest treasure, you have me. Nothing can ever, they can't take me away from you. So who cares if they take everything else away? I'm the most important to you. I will always be with you for now and forevermore. That's what Jesus is offering. If you're struggling and you're hurting and you're thinking, gosh, life is just not good. Life does not feel right. I just, I just don't feel right. Know that Jesus is there and Jesus is with you and Jesus is working all of this for your good in some way that maybe one day you'll understand what he's doing. But know that in the meantime, he's there with you now. And while this call to the crowd that had got gathered around him was, was harsh, it was harsh. 
It was meant to point them to what was true, not what was false. And he wanted them to know what they were doing. What did you believe when you were getting into when you became a disciple? What do you right now, if I were to pull, pull you up here, put a microphone in front of you, you had to answer to all, everyone in this room, what are you gaining by following Jesus right now in your life? What is that doing for you right now? Could you just like that say, this is what's happening because I'm following Jesus. Could you do that or would you have to think about it? What are you giving up because you're a disciple? You are going to have to give up something. At very least, you're going to have to give up control of your life and your schedule. At very least. But perhaps he's asking something else of you, something more profound it feels of you. What is keeping you from fully committing to following the way of Jesus, that you value what he values, that you do what he does, and that you go where he goes? What's keeping you from that? I think one of the things that I would like to do with more time is sit down and have you kind of give me some feedback on what you're processing. In a sermon like this, if you want to send me an email or catch me after today and you want to talk through how you're processing this kind of stuff, I'd love to talk with you. Because ultimately, this is not the kind of sermon that you're supposed to just digest and walk away and go, oh, never thought about that parable that way before. That's not the way you walk out. You walk out wrestling. Wrestling with what you believe, your assumptions, how you're living, how you're walking. I do know that you can go through some very serious valleys. The shadow of death is still the shadow of death. And maybe this morning, you're struggling It was all you could do just to get here. When you leave here, you're going right back to the struggle. And I want you to know that we've got some opportunities for someone to pray with you at the, as we sing this last song that are going to be in the back of this room. You can just walk back there and they'll pray with you. God is issuing the call to walk with him and to follow him. Counting the cost is less about recognizing what we're supposed to do And more about recognizing what all Jesus is doing for us. Our contentment is not based on Jesus giving us more stuff. Our contentment is based on us understanding Jesus is all that we ever really wanted. And we're just trying to fill that hole with all these other things. But he's all we really ever wanted. And maybe it's time for us to recognize we we have him. What a joy. Whatever God is speaking to you, I'm going to pray with you. We're going to sing one more song. I do encourage you to pray with those who are in the back of the room. Or you can come up and kneel up here and pray if you'd like. But let us follow Jesus well and be his apprentices. Father, sometimes your teachings are, they were difficult for your apostles. They're difficult for us. And the call that you have placed in our lives at times feels utterly impossible, which I think is the point. God, I thank you that you loved us even when we had nothing to offer and that you walk with us even when we feel that we know a better way. I pray for those in the room that are struggling. Today's a hard day. And they would just like to escape all the circumstances that they're in. God, I pray that you would give them a a moment 
of knowing that you're with them, that your presence calms our fears, it quiets our anxieties, and it reminds us that we have everything we could have ever wanted, and that is a restored relationship with you. I do pray for transparency in the hearts of all of us in this room, that if we are seeking something else to fill this hole other than you, that you would you would make that clear to us. If we are certain that we're hot, but really we're lukewarm, let us know that. And call us to the place where our hearts just burn with passion for you because you are our God, you are our Savior, you are our greatest treasure. Father, I pray that you would let us leave this place as a people who are changed and who are excited and passionate about the love that we have and the love that we have to share. Let us go out and share that with all those that we come in contact with. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.